Well, brothers and sisters, I am glad to report to you that our dear brother, Epaphroditus, has returned from Rome. Yes, you remember that he went to Rome to visit the Apostle Paul who was in prison at the time, and he's still there. But Epaphroditus got sick while he was visiting Paul, and he couldn't stay and help Paul the way that we had asked him to. Well, Paul had heard that we were upset because Epaphroditus was so ill, and so he sent him back when he got better, and, and Epaphroditus came in this week, and what's exciting to me is that he brought a letter from Paul directly to us. And so we're gonna read that letter this morning, but before we do, I wanna catch some of you up on how we ever got connected with Paul, because some of you are new here. So about 11 years ago, Paul and his uh, missionary friends, Timothy and Silas, were on a second journey and when they were on this journey, they decided that they were going to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, up into Turkey and into all of Asia. So they were in the western part of Turkey. And they were about to turn east, or to, yes, to turn east and continue to plant churches in the rest of Asia. But instead, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that we had never even heard of at that time, the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul and said, no, we don't want you to go here. Instead, cross over and go into Europe. And so Paul came first to our city, the city of Philippi, and he planted a church here. And we have the distinguished privilege of being the first church in Europe. And Paul came here, shared the gospel. How it happened was he met with the Jews that were meeting outside the city. And one of those Jews there, a woman named Lydia, she heard the gospel. What she heard was that Jesus Christ died for her sins and that she could receive his forgiveness for her sins and become a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, Lydia received Jesus that day and she and her household got baptized and that was the start of our church. And since then, we've been growing and now we're, we're Jews and we're Gentiles and we're Greeks. We're, we're a group of people who are, have all heard the gospel and responded to it, to God's love that he would send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, and now we, we follow him. Well, we were so grateful for Paul's work. You remember when Paul was here that he was in prison for a little bit while he was here, and you remember about the, the miraculous breakthrough or breakout of the prison that the Lord opened the doors for Paul and Silas. They came out, but when Paul went on his way, we sent him with a monetary gift, and, and we've continued to support his ministry by sending him gifts. In fact, he so appreciates the way we've supported him that he has used us as an example, example for other churches in the area. He said, look at the Philippians. Look at how they gave out of their poverty. So thank you, church, for giving so generously to Paul. And we continue to do that to support him because we're so grateful for his work, for the way the Holy Spirit has used him to plant our church and plant churches throughout. And that's why we support him. Well, before I read the letter to you, I, I wanna just let you know that you remember that we sent a letter with Epaphroditus and it had some questions in it. Questions like, how do we deal with suffering? 
How do we have joy? How do we persevere through suffering? We asked some questions about how do we get along? We're all different people. How do we be unified in Christ? How do we know if this person prefers this and this person prefers this? Who do we give preference to in that? And of course, we have our sister Euodia and our sister Syntyche who still aren't talking. And well, Paul is going to address something for you too as well. I hope it will help. We've been praying for you. And so Paul is going to give us this letter. And you know what? Epaphroditus told me something. He told me that while, while Paul is in prison there, that he's literally chained to a guard for most of the days. Well, you can imagine Paul being chained to a guard. That guard gets to hear the gospel. Many guards have gotten to hear the gospel. And in fact, Paul is waiting for his trial before Caesar. Can you picture it? Paul before Caesar sharing the gospel. We can only pray that Caesar would hear the gospel and respond to him. But Epaphroditus shared something else with me. He doesn't know if Paul will ever get to that point. You see, Paul thinks that this is probably his last imprisonment and that he might not even get out and that he's probably going to be executed, martyred for Jesus Christ. So if this letter that we're about to read is maybe one of Paul's last letters, we need to give some special attention to it. So before we open it up and read it, let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts now. We come to you to hear the words of the Holy Spirit, the way you led the Apostle Paul to speak your words to us specifically today. So we thank you that you have spoken. Oh Lord, help us listen. Help us hear what you have to say in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so that was, that was the introduction to the book of Philippians. I hope you are excited, as excited as I am to preach it. I hope you're that excited. Philippians is such a great book. It has famous verses in it that you know. Verses like, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Right, he who began a good work in me will complete that good work. Yeah, however that goes, right? You know, I'm terrible when I get up here. I can't do any of my memory verses. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. Great verses come from Philippians. What's really beautiful about Philippians is that when Paul writes a letter, and by the way, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was used by the Holy Spirit to write more of the New Testament than any other author. When he writes his letters to the churches, he most often starts with Paul, an apostle, and he, uh, he asserts his authority as an apostle because in most of the churches, he is writing to correct some doctrinal problems. That is, problems about teaching, wrong teachings that have crept into the church. But what we see in Philippians is he's not doing that. Apparently, we don't know of any doctrinal issue that came to the Philippians that was a problem. Instead, they had questions about practical things like how do we get along? How do we persevere? How do we, what's most important in life? And Paul, kind of in a fatherly way, writes to them and shares with them his heart. But what's so beautiful about it is that he uses doctrine to teach them how to answer those questions. You see, because doctrine is not just a body of knowledge that we're supposed to know, teachings about Christ or teachings from Christ. 
Doctrine is meant to get into our hearts, to change who we are on the inside, to change the way we think, and to have that come out in our actions. And so what we have in the book of Philippians is beautiful, some of the highest doctrine of the New Testament, given in a way that's practical for you and me to hear and listen and apply to our lives. So let's begin reading it. Philippians is in the New Testament. You will find this. It's toward the, toward the second third or the last third of the book. We're going to start right in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we notice right away, first thing, Paul does not assert his apostolic authority here. How does he refer to himself? As a bond servant, a slave. Paul is referring to himself as a slave of Christ. He could easily assert his authority, but he doesn't. So we see right away he's coming at this from from a different perspective. He's coming at this from a different vantage point. And he says this, that he's writing this to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So as a former Catholic, to me, a saint was always a, a super Christian, right? A Christian who could do things I could never do. But that's not how the Bible uses the word saint. The word means, it comes from the same word as sanctified, and it means to be set apart. And I like to see this in two ways. The first way is that we are set apart from the world, So where we were citizens of the world, now we are citizens of heaven and aliens in the world. We're set apart from the world because we're no longer bound to the world's system. We're no longer obligated to sin the way the world sins. Now we have the power of Christ in us and through that power, we are able to live a different life. Yes, Lord, amen, that is right. Right, and so we're set apart from the world. Well, the other way we're set apart is we are set apart to Christ, which means that we have been commissioned to a great work. That great work is to share the gospel, to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And that great work may mean that you become a missionary. It may mean that you become a preacher. It may mean that you're a parent teaching your children. It may mean that you're sitting over coffee with a neighbor and you're sharing the good news of Christ because they're not gonna get it anywhere else. And so, so he's referring to these set apart ones. So Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, to the set apart ones, all followers of Jesus Christ. And he also says that this is including the overseers or the elders and the deacons. Do you know this is the only letter that he actually addresses elders and deacons? Now, he talks to elders and deacons in other letters, but here he actually puts it in in the address of the letter. So it's interesting to me, and what I think is that there's, Paul is doing something here that is really important. You see, one of the themes of the book is, is that we are to have the same attitude of Christ regarding one another as more important than ourselves. And right from the opening, Paul is doing that. He's saying, I'm a slave, I'm a slave of Christ, serving you, you elders, you deacons. Right away, he's saying, you're more important, and I'm here to serve you. God has blessed me as an apostle, and I do have that authority, 
but I am a servant of Christ, and so I am serving you, you saints, you elders, you deacons. So I, I think about that. Uh, it, it's really important to understand how Paul is approaching the Philippians in this letter. Well, in this next section, listen to how affectionate the apostle is toward the saints. Verse three says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, from the beginning, 11 years prior to this, the Philippians engaged immediately with Paul's work, his work of sharing the gospel. Do you remember the day that you began your walk with Christ? Do you remember how excited you were? Remember the joy that you had and the energy that you had and, and how you wanted to share Christ with the people around you because it was new life in you and you wanted to give them and share that new life with them. Well, here, 11 years later, and the Philippians are still doing it. They're still excited about it. And think about how exciting it must have been for them to live in a totally godless society and to be sharing that God loves them. Oh, believers, you know what? We live in a society that's not far from that. We gripe and complain sometimes. Maybe I shouldn't use the words gripe and complain, but that, you know, our society is, you know, uh, just going to pot and that our government is turned away from biblical values and, uh, you know, we, our Christian heritage is gone and, you know, we complain about all that and get upset about that. I think it's an opportunity. We have an opportunity that for generations we have never faced before. We have an opportunity to share Christ with a godless generation, with a godless country. We have the opportunity to bring hope to people who aren't going, aren't going to get hope anywhere else. They're not gonna get hope from a president. They're not gonna get hope from some environmental law or some other law. They're gonna get hope from Jesus Christ. And we have the opportunity, the privilege of being able to share that hope, the only hope they will ever have. And you and I have that privilege because of the time that we live in. Oh, I hope the next time you feel like, like saying something about our situation, our environment, our government, whatever, I hope that you just feel that, that prod from the Lord saying, make it do something. Share the gospel with somebody. They need, if, you're, if you're feeling this way about the world, it's because they have no hope. Share it. Share the gospel. Oh, God presses us on that. I, I love how things are bubbling up in this church right now. I know many of you know about our local outreach that goes over to a neighborhood in our community and shares the gospel. Every month, they bring food and they share the gospel there. Did you also know that we have a, a, a new committee, I hate that word, but a new team of people uh, rising up called the Global Outreach Team. And, and what their purpose is, is to mobilize us, to use our, our financial resources and our human resources and put them to, to needs that are out there. So this may mean short-term trips to missionaries. This may mean if the Mukabotos in Africa, uh, you know, need something immediately, we can send some medical help there or whatever. It may mean running to Florida and helping with, with a hurricane, whatever, but we are able to do that now, we, mobilization. We have our fall festival coming out, great outreach. Over a thousand people here get to hear the gospel. And the energy that's behind that here is so exciting to me. 
And I hope and pray that that energy, that enthusiasm will infect every one of us because it's so exciting to watch the Lord work when the gospel is given out. You know, I think sometimes we think that it's our job to protect the gospel. Our job is to release the gospel. We need to let it out, right? It's no good sitting here. We've got it. I shouldn't say it's no good. Man, we need the gospel every day, don't we? Right? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. But we need to let the gospel out. The gospel will do its work. God's word will go and change lives and bring new life. And that's what we want. We want people here to, to come to the Lord. Next week, we have a baptism service here. In the early service, we have two people bap- being baptized. In this service, I think we have eight or nine being baptized. New life, life in Christ. We can't wait. Amen. The Lord is doing a work here. And if you're not on that bandwagon, hop on. We want you. We need you. I'm excited about that. I hope you're excited. Anybody excited? I know you're excited. Anybody else? (laughs) Give me some excitement. Amen. All right. Hey, so Paul goes on. Verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. You hear the sensitivity and the tenderness here? Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, their work at sharing in the gospel was an encouragement to Paul. And his repayment of that was to pray for them. Just huge encouragement. And he prays, and he prays for their growth, for the sanctification, right? He says, he who began a good work in you will continue it until its completion. That's sanctification. Remember, they were sanctified, they were set apart as saints. Well, the, God continues to sanctify them and, and build them up, and it's God who does the work. You notice Paul's confidence is not in them. His confidence is in the Lord, who started the work in the first place and will continue to work. You see, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Our job is to submit to him, but if we do, He'll just perfect us, perfect us, perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus when we're finally like him. I can't wait for that day. I hope you're excited about that too. So then Paul shows us how he prays. And this is where we're gonna park for the rest of the sermon here. There's some very beautiful teaching that is here just for us today. Paul says in verse nine, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, He prays that their love would abound still more and more. So he's commending them for the way they love. And then he's saying, but let's have it abound still more and more. So this love is the same love that we talked about last week, agape love. It's the self-sacrificing love. The love that gives up self for the benefit of others. The love that loves the unlovely 
It's the love that Jesus Christ had. That's how he loved. It was sacrifice. See, it's a love that never dies, but Jesus Christ died for you. It's a love that doesn't recoil when love isn't returned. And that's how Jesus loved us, isn't it? He didn't, we didn't love him back. It's a love that puts others' interests before itself. The Apostle John says this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how Jesus loved. He loved as an atoning sacrifice. See, agape love and sacrifice are equal. You cannot separate them. So Paul is praying that the the giving up of myself love, the putting others before me love, the your interests are greater than my love would abound in our church. Wow. That they would abound, that they would overflow. So here's the thing. Our ability to love is directly proportionate to our knowledge of God. Let me, let me say that again. Our ability to love sacrificially is directly proportionate to how we know and love God. It is super important that we understand that. You wanna love God more, you've gotta know God more. You wanna love more in general, you've got to know God more, and this makes sense, God is love. So if you want more love, you got more God. All right, that's how that works. Now, you know, we pray all the time, oh Lord, increase my love, oh Lord, help me love so-and-so. Well, the way to do that is get to know God more. The more you know God and understand his love, the more you'll be able to pour that out and then God will change your heart toward that person. It works all the time. So the best way, the most, the, the most important way we're gonna get to know God is how? We say it every week through the scriptures, through the scriptures. Now, I know that studying the Bible can be intimidating. I know that reading the Bible can be hard. It's not an easy book. It's not above any one of us here, though, okay? Any one of us can sit and read the word and get to know God better. It can be intimidating. It's the only way, though, that we will be able to increase our love. If you want more love, spend time in the word and get to know who God is, because God is love. And here's why, the Bible is the only place we can get a complete view of God's love. Listen to these verses. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be children of God and that is what we are. So the one thing that has in common on all the verses about God's love is sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself for you, for me. Jesus gave himself up. It is the greatest act in all of history. All of creation is centered around the one fact that Jesus Christ died for humanity to rescue humanity out of the situation it was in. Now, he didn't die because he was a nice guy. He didn't die because he needed fellowship with us. He didn't die because he had something to gain. He died because we needed something. We needed a way out. 
a way out of the press of God's wrath that was hanging around our neck because of our sin. The guilt and the shame that came with that sin, weighing us down, killing us. And Jesus Christ came, he gave himself for you. And that's God's love. And he offers that to you. He offers that to you today. Only he can offer it. I can't offer it. Your friends can't offer it. You can't offer it to yourself. Only Jesus Christ can offer salvation of your soul to you. And there's nothing that you can do to fix your problem. And there's nothing that you have to do other than trust in Christ. To put your trust in his work on the cross that he died in order to save your soul so that you could have fellowship with God for all eternity. It's the most beautiful thing in the whole world. He's offering that to you today if you have not received Jesus as your savior. Even if you've been coming here for years, today would be a wonderful day to say, I hear his love. I want his love. What other love are you gonna get like Jesus' love? There is no other. Would you receive it today? So if we want, to, want our love to increase, we need to pursue knowing Jesus. Later on in Philippians, Paul will say it this way. He says, I want to know him becoming like him in his death. You see the connection? I know God so that I can love agape love. I can sacrificially love to know him, become like him in his death. Oh, may we love that way. May we love that way. Next, he prays that their love may abound in real knowledge and in all discernment. So real knowledge, real knowledge. So, and all discernment. All discernment is, is moral perception, okay? Or the, the ability to decipher right action. That's what discernment is here. Paul is praying that they would have knowledge and that that knowledge would give them good and strong moral decision making. It's not sloppy agape. I wish I had come up with that. I stole that from somebody else, sloppy agape. And you know, it, this, is not, this is not that. This is a strong love. This is a love that knows how to say no. A love that knows how to say enough. A love that knows how to say, I cannot or you cannot, right? That's this kind of love, okay? We've all seen sloppy agape parenting. We've seen sloppy agape dating, right? We know what that is. But that's not the kind of love that's, that Paul is talking about here. This is a love that's growing in discernment and loves well and loves strong and protects it's a beautiful love. So now let's look at what, what we're guaranteed. So Paul says here, he's praying that their love would abound in knowledge and in discernment. And then from that abounding love, we get four benefits. And we're gonna look at those four benefits. We'll go through these quickly. The first is that we are able to approve the things that are excellent. So what this is, is, is taking the discerning side of love and putting it in our lives. Pastor John D and I do a significant amount of counseling here in the church. And what we notice 
just repeatedly, is people will come to us because they're unhappy about something. And when we start digging with them and start, start asking questions and, and talking about the scriptures, what we realize is that most often it's people have, have habits that they've allowed into their lives that are making them unhappy. They're, they're putting, putting wrong thoughts into their heads, putting wrong attitudes into their hearts having wrong actions that are repeated over and over. But the Lord reminds us in the book of Philippians as well that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You see, we need to stop wasting time putting things in our head that makes us worry. We need to stop wasting time thinking about things that just cause fear. Stop wasting time thinking about things and dwelling on the things that are tempting us or, or causing us to lose faith. There's not enough time in the world for this. We've got work to do. We live in a godless community that needs the hope of the gospel and that's gonna come from us through the way we love. And so we have to fill ourselves with things that are noble and pure and, and praiseworthy. And when we start doing that, it gets our mind into the right rhythm that we're supposed to be in in order to be obedient and then to be used by God in sharing the gospel. So, so we really need to, to, to do that. We, as we look to put this, this love in our lives, it will give us the ability to decipher right from wrong, the things that are excellent. So the second benefit that we get is sincerity, sincerity. Now, I love this word. It literally means without wax. Sin without, sere is wax, without wax. So can we get that picture? Is that picture up here? Ah, so here we have a Roman, what's missing on this guy? Yeah, I'm a Roman, right? Look at the size of that nose, right? Romans are supposed to have big noses. This guy has no nose. So what they would do is they would take the part that fell off and they would mix it with wax and put it back on. And then they'd sell it. So if I was a Roman and I wanted a beautiful statue like that in my garden, I would buy it and I'd take it home and I'd put it in my beautiful Roman garden and the beautiful Mediterranean sun would come out and the wax would start to melt and no nose again. You see, what this is talking about is that we are to be made of one spiritual material. No wax, okay? In other words, unmixed. We should be unmixed with things that are carnal. Unmixed with things that are fleshly. Are you living in duality? Have you allowed the, the little sins to come in? You know. For you who have been saved for a long time, hopefully some of those what we call bigger sins are, have been worked out. But what about the little stuff? The, the little everybody does it sins. The maybe not reporting everything on your taxes. Maybe the little lies that protect your reputation. Maybe fraternizing with gossiping taking place even in the church. Maybe complaining. These are all things that God would not have for his people. This is the wax. This is the wax that if that's the way you, you keep that duality in your life, that when the sun comes out and the pressure comes and the heat comes on, we melt away. We fall away because we're not one material. 
See, we need to be one material, God working in our lives. So are you who you are? Are you at home who you are when that phone rings or when you go out? If not, God is giving you the power to be that, to be no wax, sincere before God. Honesty, integrity, completeness. So another promise of this abounding love is that we will be blameless. This word really means offenseless. So I wanna think of this in two ways. The first way is unoffensive. So if I'm blameless, it means I'm unoffensive to you. So here's how this works. If I'm putting you before me, then I will not want to offend you, all right? I will not be offensive to you. Now, here's the the other side of it. If I accidentally am offensive to you, you are unoffended, all right? So we have offensive and offended, or unoffensive and unoffended. Right? You see, I love the verse in Proverbs where it says, wisdom gives a man patience to overlook an offense. How does that go, Denise? (laughs) Wisdom gives a man patience. Oh, it is to his glory to overlook an offense. You see, oh, sometimes we're just so sensitive. We're just petty. Man, if, if you offend me, unless it's sinful, then I need to confront you in a loving way. But, you know, if you offend me, I need to just practice being unoffended and become unoffendable. That's being blameless here is. Being blameless is also talking about our stand before God, right? That he can't put blame on us, you did it. See, that's Satan's job. Satan does that to us all the time, doesn't he? You did that. Look at what you did. God doesn't blame us because Jesus Christ took everything, all that sin, from us. Thank him for that. All right, and finally, the result of this love is the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. And um, this, you know, Jesus Christ gave us righteousness. We are the fruit of righteousness. He gave us his righteousness because he took our sin. We call that imputation or, or inputting, all right? He's putting in his righteousness into us. We didn't deserve it but he gave that to us because he loved us, because his love is so great. And as a result of that, we have the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives. And you could say the fruit of the Spirit with me, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mixed up the order again. Don't make me memorize stuff, okay? Uh, yeah, but it's so good, right? We, and we all, who doesn't want more love? Who doesn't want more self-control? Who want, doesn't want more faithfulness? We all want it. Well, how are we gonna get it? Through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. I can't muster that up in myself. It's only through knowing him. The route to getting all of these things into our lives is the sanctifying work of God. And that happens when I'm submitting myself to him. So finally, those four things, finally, not only do all these benefits come to us when God's love increases and abounds in us, but also we have them forever. It says until the the day of Christ Jesus, and then on top of that, God gets the glory. 
God gets the glory. That's ultimately what, what this comes down to. The most important thing here is that through all of this, God is the one to receive the glory for it. It's his work from the start. He started the good work in you. He will bring it to completion. It's his work to his glory. So I wanna just kind of stop for one second and talk about a couple of ways we can, we can think about this. If we don't have this kind of love abounding and growing on us, uh, in us, then much of what we do is really just legalism. Think of it this way. We, we talk about purity, especially with young people. You know, we tell them, you should be pure, you should remain pure until you're married. Now, if they don't have the motivation of God's abounding love in their heart, this just becomes a rule that probably isn't gonna stand up when temptation comes. Unless they have the abounding love of God, they have no reason to remain pure. I, I think of it this way, you know, we, we even talk about, you know, how, how, you know, believers should be in the word every day and, and, you know, be praying and developing our relationship with the Lord, doing these things. But if we are doing them without the motivation of God's abounding love in our heart, then it's just a legalism. It's just an act that I might actually think somehow makes me secure but if I'm responding to God's amazing sacrificial love, his agape love, if I'm loving him, then I look forward to being in the word. Oh yeah, it's work. It's a lot of work, but I look forward to it. I look forward to communing with this God who loves me so much and praying to him. We pray often, oh Lord, I want to glorify you more. Help me glorify you. Well, the way to do that, the, the pathway to do that is to know God because God is love. The more you know God, the more his love will be abounding, filling up and overflowing in your life. And then his love will abound in knowledge and discernment and that will result in being able to know what things are excellent, in a sincere heart, in being offenseless and unoffendable, and righteousness. That's how we give God's glory. Would you stand with me now? I'd like us to sing, um, I love you, Lord. I don't think the words will be up here, but just sing it with me. Let's just, just cry out our hearts to the Lord and tell him how much we love him.